Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. In December of 2017, we each selected Christmas-themed episodes to listen to, and I chose an adaptation of Charles Dickens' other ghost story, The Signalman. The story doesn't inherently have a Christmas theme, but ghost stories are a bit of a holiday tradition in Britain. 23 years after publishing A Christmas Carol, Dickens published The Signalman in the 1866 Christmas edition of the literary magazine All the Year Round. It was part of an anthology called Mugby Junction, which featured stories about the rail lines that extend from that junction. The story was adapted by several series, including Lights Out, Hall of Fantasy, Columbia Workshop, and Nightfall. The Weird Circle adapted the story under the name The Thing in the Tunnel. Suspense adapted the story for radio three times. The first featured Agnes Moorhead and aired March 23, 1953. It returned in November of 1956, featuring Sarah Churchill, and then again in February of 1959, featuring Ellen Drew. Given how many adaptations of the story exist, I thought it would be fun to make a holiday tradition of listening to a different version each December. Our first year, we listened to the Suspense version from 1956 with Sarah Churchill, who, in addition to being an actress and a dancer, was also the daughter of Winston Churchill. For the second year, we listened to Columbia Workshop's version from January of 1937, and last year I brought the version presented by Beyond Midnight. This year, we are listening to the adaptation from Lights Out. Willis Cooper conceived of Lights Out and established a tradition of grisly tales peppered with dark humor. A little over a year after it began, the show was picked up for national broadcast and the decision was made to tone down the content. Cooper departed the show in 1936 and was replaced by Arch Obler, whose first script, Burial Service, featured a paralyzed girl who is buried alive. Listeners responded with a torrent of angry letters, which is to say that Obler successfully continued Cooper's legacy. Lights Out was canceled in 1939, but was revived by Obler in 1942, largely reusing his earlier scripts. The series was revived again in 1946 and yet again in 1947, mostly reusing Cooper's scripts from the original series. This episode, however, is an exception among these later installments, an original adaptation of Charles Dickens' other famous ghost story, first broadcast on Lights Out, August 24th, 1946. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices. The National Broadcasting Company presents Lights Out, a summer revival of the famous series which many of our listeners will remember. Tonight's story, the eighth and the last in this series, is called The Singleman. Lights Out, everybody. This is the witching hour. 
the hour when dogs howl and evil is let loose on the sleeping world. Sit in the dark now and listen to Lights Out. to a man who stood beside a railroad track at the bottom of a deep and rocky ravine. One would have thought that, considering the nature of the ground, he would have looked up to where I was standing. But instead, he turned and looked down the railroad line. I called again. Hello, below there! Because the terrible glare of the setting sun was in my eyes, I put my left arm across my face and waved to him with my right. He looked up and... And I saw in his face an expression of intense horror. He regarded me fixedly without moving. I shouted, Is there a path by which I can come down and speak to you? He continued to stare at me. Gradually, the expression of horror seemed to pass from his face, leaving it a gray, empty mask. When he spoke, his voice seemed to come from a grave. Why do you wish to speak to me? No reason. Just want to talk. If you have no reason, then please go on your way. Well, I do have a reason. Uh, Let me come down and talk to you. He motioned with his little rolled-up flag to a narrow path about 200 yards distant, which descended the rocky wall of the ravine. I carefully made my way down it. The ravine was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. The man's post at the bottom was in as solitary and dismal a place as I'd ever seen. I could see the railroad tracks running into a dark, gloomy tunnel at one end of it. So little sunlight ever found its way to the spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell. And so much cold wind rushed through that it struck chill into me, as though I'd left the mortal world. Hello, I'm... I'm afraid I'm intruding. Well? I'd I'd better explain. You see, I'm a reporter for the London Times. You know the Times. Yes, I know the Times. I'm a new man. I was assigned to do a series of stories on on people who work at little-known occupations in the city. And strolling along, seeing you down here, I thought, well, I thought, here is a story. And that's the reason that brought you down here? Yes, sir. Perhaps I'd better ask you a few questions, hadn't I? For instance, how far down are we? I've never seen anything quite like this before. Fifty-two feet. Is that considered deep for railroad cutting? Deepest in the country. Fifty-two feet. Hmm? And and how long is the tunnel? Three quarters of a mile. I see. And that red signal light in front of the tunnel, is that part of your job? I mean, do you have to see that it stays lighted all the time? Don't you know that it is? Don't I know it is? Look, you've been staring at me ever since... Well, ever since I called to you. Staring as though I were something to be afraid of. (laughs) I'm just a newspaper reporter, that's all. I thought I'd seen you before. Seen me? But where? There. By that signal light. But I've never been here before. 
the part of London I've never visited. No, you may be sure of that. Perhaps I may. Yes, I'm sure I may. I beg your pardon for being so unfriendly. It's just that... Well, I made a mistake. That's all right. I shouldn't have come down, I suppose. After I saw this unusual ravine in the tunnel and your job down here, I felt I had to come down and talk to you. I think I'm glad you did. I have very little company. This is a world here different from other men's worlds. I can believe that. May I ask, what exactly is the nature of your job? I mean, besides keeping the signal light burning and flagging the trains, what do you have to do? Not very much. I operate the telegraph in my hut over there. Turn this iron handle now and then. That's all. And you're down here all the time? Yes. Don't you ever get a chance to take a few minutes off and get up there on top in the sunlight? Very seldom. I can't leave the telegraph. Oh, by the way, I have a fire in my signal house. Wouldn't you like to come in and warm yourself? Oh, indeed, I would. This, this wind cuts right through me. We'll hurry along. There. This will be better. Yes. I'll just put a little more wood on the fire, poke it down. How do you stand that wind? I'm about frozen. I've been here eight or nine years, maybe ten. I'm used to the wind. It never changes. Here, take this chair close to the fire. Thank you. Tell me, don't you ever feel cut off from the world? Almost as though you were marooned and isolated down here? Yes, I do. This is a world in itself, down here. It's as wide as the tunnel is, and as high. Those are the boundaries of my world. For one hour, sometimes less, the sunlight falls into it. And at night I see the bright stars, as other men do. But that is all our two worlds hold in common. But why did you ever take such a job? Because... I... Oh, excuse me. A message. Certainly. 6.15, Roxborough, ten minutes late. Received message. All's well. Do you know, after talking to you, I feel as though I've at last met with a completely contented man. I believe I used to be so at one time. But now, I'm worried. Worried. About what? I don't know. It's uh, uh, difficult to explain. Perhaps I can help you. I've been thinking of that. I've been wondering. Tell me. I've got to tell someone. And yet... Uh, give me some time to think it over. Say until tomorrow night. Perhaps then... You mean, you'd like me to come back? Yes, if it wouldn't be too much trouble. I'll be here, about the same time. But why not now? Why can't you tell me now? I want to think it over in my mind first. I want to be sure. Uh, meanwhile, let me light your way to the path. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, don't forget your pad and oh, pencil. Thank you. Oh. 
dark, isn't it? Yes, be careful. Everything gets damp and slippery down here at this time of the night. <sighs> I didn't think 52 feet would make such a difference in atmosphere. There's the path. And let me ask one favor of you. Yes? When you reach the top, don't call out. Very well. And tomorrow when you come, don't call out. Tell me, what made you cry out hello below there tonight? I don't know. Did I cry something to that effect? Not to that effect. Those were the very words. I know them well. I suppose I said them because... Because I saw you below. With your left hand across your face and your right arm raised. The sunset was in my eyes. That was the only reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that the words and gesture were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No, of course not. I see. Well, good night, then. I'll see you tomorrow night. Yes. Yes, tomorrow night. I didn't sleep, because the man's face was constantly before me, and there was something in the eyes of fear, a wordless crying agony of spirit that fevered my own brain and wouldn't let me rest. All night long I watched the face, and behind it was the sun going down in flames beyond the ravine, and a figure which I recognized as myself, one arm shading the eyes, the other waving and standing in the ravine and shouting, Hello below there! In the morning... My landlady awakened me. She said I'd been crying out in my sleep all night. Throughout that day, I worked with one eye on the clock, counting the hours until my appointment with the signal man. At last it came. The sun was going down again as I made my way down the path into the dank and unworldly ravine. He was waiting for me at the bottom with his white light. I didn't call to you. It's as you asked. I'm glad you didn't. I was waiting for you. Come along. We'll go into the hut and talk. It's warm there. Good. I'm glad you came. At times during the day, I feared you wouldn't. I promised you. Yes. I've made up my mind to tell you the story. Hmm. The whole thing. Sit down. Thank you. But before I do, tell me. Do you believe that I am in my right mind? Yes. Yes, I believe that. All right. Do you remember yesterday evening the fact that I took you for someone else? Yes. That's what's troubling me. The mistake you mean? No. There's someone else I took you for. Who is he? I don't know. Does he look like me? I don't know. I've never seen his face. You see, the left arm is across the face, always... And the right arm is waved violently this way. It's as though he were trying to signal me. For God's sake, clear the way. Where do you see him? Uh, I may as well start at the beginning. One moonlight night about a year ago, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry out, Hello, below there. 
was just as you called last evening. I jumped up and looked out of the door and saw this... This... Someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving, just as you did last night. One arm across the face, the other waving toward you? Yes, the voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And then again, Hello, below there, look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on, and ran toward this figure. What's wrong, I said? What's happened? It didn't speak. Stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered it's keeping the, the arms across the eyes. I ran right up to it and had my hand outstretched to pull the arm away when... It was gone. Uh, gone? Where? I don't know. I ran on into the tunnel, 500 yards maybe. I stopped and held my lamp over my head. And all I saw were the wet stains trickling down the walls. I ran out faster than I'd run in, searched the area with my light, and then came back here and, and called Burnham and said the alarm had been given anything wrong. They answered, all's well. Disregard alarm message. Well, don't you suppose you could have imagined seeing him? Yes, but you forget. I also heard him. Yes, but listen to the wind whistling through the tunnel. It sounds almost human at times. It's possible to well, imagine. Let me finish. You haven't heard the rest. Within six hours after the appearance, six hours, mind you, the 240 train came through the tunnel, slowed down and stopped. The engineer signaled me and I hurried up to the cab. What's the matter? Don't know. One of the conductors signaled for a stop. Everything all right here? Yes, just got the all clear signal. Here comes the conductor now. Hello. What's wrong back there? What did you pull the cord for? An accident. Where's the signalman around here? That's me. You have a shack nearby. Right over there. Uh, what happened, man? A woman was killed. Killed? No. She was passing between the coaches. I suppose she slipped, was caught between the coupling. What hell? Nobody seems to know, sir. She was crushed horribly. On account of the other passengers, we've got to get the body off. Have them take her to my shack. You have them take her. From the shock when one morning, just as day was breaking, I looked toward the red signal light. And... Saw him again. Did he cry out this time? No. He was silent. Did he wave his arm? Yes, the right one. The left, as usual, was across his eyes. He seemed to be pointing down into the tunnel. He leaned against the shaft of the light like a... like a statue over a grave. Did anything happen? Any accident? Anything? Not immediately. He was there. I saw him. Then he was gone. I waited for the hours to pass, and when six hours went by and nothing had happened, I began to feel relieved. By nightfall, I had almost forgotten it and was able to read quite calmly as the hours passed. I was sitting here reading, the door open, when I heard a train. It was the Midnight Express from Brighton. I recognized the whistle. I got out my flag, stepped to the door... I could hear them from miles beyond the tunnel entrance. I listened to the wheels, filling the night with their driving, pounding, rhythmic beat. And I thought of the people on the train, the tired, worn-out picnickers and weekenders returning from Brighton. It made me feel responsible for them, as though I were their guardian and keeper. I listened to the rhythmic beat of the wheels, 
The train was nearing the tunnel mouth. I listened to the regular, powerful beats of them, and then suddenly I realized that they weren't regular. There was no rhythm. Only the terrible, raging cry of a machine that has suddenly broken through its own power and is heading for destruction. It was the worst wreck on the line. They brought the dead and dying in here. They laid them at the place where he stood waving to me that very morning. This was the second accident after you'd seen him? Yes. And the thing that is worrying me now, he came back again a week ago. Ever since he's been there now and again by fits and starts. Standing by the light? Yes. What does he seem to do? The left arm is over the face. The right arm is waving. He seems to be trying to say, for God's sake, clear the way. can't believe it. I have no peace or rest from it. It calls to me for many minutes together in a frightful manner. Below there, look out, look out. It stands waving to me. Well, have you seen it tonight? No. Not yet. But will you come to the door with me and look for it now? Yes. Yes, I will. Do you see it? No. It's not there. Then let's go back. wasn't there now, but it may be there a moment from now. What troubles me is, what does this specter mean? What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on this line. Some dreadful calamity is about to happen. It's not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. But what can I do? Nothing that I can see. If I telegraph danger, I can give no reason for it. I should get into trouble and do no one any good. They would think I was mad. I would wire danger, take care. And they would answer, what danger, where? And I would have to wire back, don't know, but for God's sake, take care. And they would, of course, discharge me. What else could they do? Yes, I, I see. When it first stood under that light, why didn't it tell me? She is going to die. Let them keep her at home. When it came the second time. Why didn't it tell me how the accident could have been averted? If it came on those occasions only to show me that its warnings were true, why doesn't it warn me plainly now? Why doesn't it tell me what is going to happen so that I can change it? Listen, there's nothing you can do. Or rather, you're doing the only thing that any sane, normal person would do, and that's nothing. The important thing is to keep your balance now. Don't get worked up to the point that... That if you need to act later, you won't be able to. Yes. You're right. Of course you're right. You're doing your job as well as it's humanly possible to do. You're not responsible for the future. You're responsible only for the present. What happens at this switch now? You've got to look at it that way. I know. I know. Only I can't forget that something is going to happen. I... 
don't doubt that. But if you keep your eyes open at all times, you may be able to prevent it. I pray to God I may. It's easy to say, but... But try not to think about it too much. I try. But it's the responsibility that crushes me. Because of this specter, because of this knowledge of things that will happen along this line, I am responsible for every child, every mother, every person that rides upon it. I know that something is going to happen. I ought to warn them, but I don't know how to warn them when they die. If they die, their deaths are on my shoulders. Look, would you like me to spend the rest of the night with you? Perhaps it would help keep your mind off things. No, 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 thank you. I, I'll, I'll be all right. You, you don't know what a blessing it's been just to be able to tell you the whole story. Would you like me to come back tomorrow night? Would you mind? No. And when you write your story about me, about this job... Yes? If you could tell the whole story, everything, everything I've told you, it would help lift this awful responsibility from my shoulders. People would know, then. Uh, they might think me mad, but they would know. And the weight would be from my spirit. Yes, I'll write that story tomorrow. Everything. You needn't be afraid that I'll skip anything. I'll bring it along with me and show it to you before I turn it in. It would mean so much. Yes. Now, uh, I think it's best that I go. Good night, then. And you will come back tomorrow? Yes. Can you find the path? Easily. I'm beginning to know it by heart now. Good night. I went to bed immediately after returning to my lodgings. If I had slept unsoundly the night before, I slept little, if any, this night. There were the same dreams, the man's face, his eyes with their deep inner secret and pain, and in the background the sun going down over the ravine, and the figure, no longer my own, with one arm across the eyes and the other waving toward me, crying in a low moan, Clear the way! Clear the way! In the morning, when I came to work, I felt tired, almost feverish. I hardly, could hardly wait until sundown when I would again visit the signalman. I wanted to show him the story as I'd written it. At last, the hands of the clock pointed to 6.30, and I left the office on my way to the ravine. About half an hour later, I arrived at the top of the cutting. I glanced down, and there, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw a man, his left arm across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for I saw that this man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men standing at a short distance to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there alone in his state of mind the night before, I descended the rocky path with all the speed I could make and, and ran up to the crowd. What's the matter here? Signalman killed. When? Just a little while ago. Not the man belonging to this post? Aye. Not the man I know. You will recognize him, sir, if you are a friend to him. The body is over here. There. You see? Oh. How did it happen? 
He was cut down by the engine, sir. Just as he was lighting that red lamp. No man on the line knew his work better. But somehow he wasn't clear of the outer rail. He had the lamp in his hand ready to light it as the engine came out of the tunnel. His back was toward it and she caught him down. Ah, here's the engineer now. Tom, show him how it happened. Yes, how did it happen? I'm a reporter from the time. Well, sir, coming around the curve in the tunnel, I saw him at the end. There was no time to check the speed, but I always knew him to be very careful. Only this time, he didn't seem to pay any attention to the whistle. I finally shut it off when we were running down on him and called out to him. What did you say? I shouted, Hello below there! For God's sake, clear the way! No. Yes, sir. That I shouted. Oh, it was a terrible thing, sir. I never left off calling to him. Finally, I... I put my left arm across the eyes so that I would not to see. And I waved this arm to the last. But it was no use, sir. No use. No use. so that it took all my efforts to climb the rocky path to the top of the ravine. I knew the sun was going down in flames behind me, but I dared not look. I hurried back to my desk at the office and began writing the tragic end of the story. Sir? Yes, boy? Is your copy ready, sir? In just a moment. Please hurry, sir. Pipe it goes to press in a half hour. I'll have it ready. Come back in a few minutes. All right, sir. This, then, is the story as it was told to me and as I saw it. I make no judgment of it. No deductions. It happened. I know it happened. That is all. Except I bear with me the memory of a humble man, lonely and isolated from this world of ours, one who bore the responsibility for his fellow men so strongly on his conscience that he died from it. For I am convinced that that alone is what brought him to this end, not the train which was merely an instrument of fate. Signed. Charles Dickens. All right. You can turn them on now. You have just heard the eighth and the last in the summer series of Lights Out. Tonight's story, Charles Dickens, The Signalman, was adapted for radio by Frederick J. Lipp. Starring in the role of Charles Dickens was Nelson Armstead. The signalman was played by Herb Butterfield. Others in the cast included Boris Apland, Nathan Davis, and Jess Pugh. And now it's time to turn the lights out for the summer. We've enjoyed bringing you these shows, and if we've managed to send a few shows up and down your spine, well, that's what we set out to do. Beginning next week at this time, be sure to hear the new Judy Canova show, which returns to the air. You'll have the time of your life, so be sure to listen.
Lights Out was produced and directed by Albert Cruz. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That was The Signalman from Lights Out here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that is our holiday Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society tradition continued in its fourth year. Is fourth our, year. This is our fourth signalman that all started out with Tim uh, phoning it in in 2017 when he was told to find a Christmas story and came up with some weak ass, oh, well, you know, it's got a ghost in it, and that's cool in England during Christmas, so do, boom, done. And then everybody said that was really cool, and now I think it's really cool, too, so it's no longer lazy. Uh, and it's turned into a very nice tradition. <laughs> even because, lazier now. Yes. <laughs> now even lazier. <laughs> Here's where I'm going to come right out of the gates. First comment. That's the best one so far. Landslide. I wow. agree with you. Yep. What? I, I think other episodes have specific aspects to them that they do better. But overall, this walks the line that's truest and does the best job overall. The silence from Joshua is <laughs> deafening. <laughs> I find myself in a strange position here suddenly <laughs> because I am usually one who enjoys the faithful adaptation of a story, but my favorite is still the suspense version, which takes some liberties. I think it works the best dramatically on radio and combines some of the best elements of the short story and also adds some surprising twists that were very modern in the 1950s when it was first aired. But we're not talking about the suspense version. We're talking about this one. And I, I do think this is a good adaptation. I will tell you right now what I got tripped up in is the fact that this is a Lights Out episode. About halfway through when I was able to just shake away the expectations of what a Lights Out episode should be, I enjoyed it more. I found it extremely jarring when that Lights Out gong came in because this is a very sedate, old-fashioned ghost story. I yeah. love this ghost story. That is not a rip on it in any way, shape, or form. But when we get to this point at which the signalman says, well, come back tomorrow, will you? And the reporter says, okay, I will. Gong! <laughs> like it's right. like ominous thing. I'm like, what? That was not gong-worthy. I'm sorry. <laughs> And so I think that did affect what I felt about it. And it is interesting to bring up that this is one of the few that was not written by Arch Obler or Willis Cooper. In fact, I think it was written for this 1946 revival series. Every other episode in that series was an old Willis Cooper script except for this one. The Haunted Cell, which we listened to this year, was from this same revival series. Part of the reason I like it is it it does deliver the horror of like a classic Lights Out series, but it, it doesn't have the sort of wicked glee, grisly sort of aspect that you normally associate with Lights Out. For me, as a piece of suspense, which creates horror for me, suspense creates horror and not knowing what's going on and tension, it checks the list of the three Ps, that being performance pace and production. The performances are outstanding. The pace moves really well for me. It gets to where it's going 
in a timely manner. I don't know how else to say that. And the production value and the quality uh, being sound effects and all of that is really well done. I'm wondering if I might be tainted slightly in my assessment by sound quality from some of the others, because this is crystal clear. Well, for an old-time radio show, crystal clear, which also helps. And if I remember correctly, maybe I'm wrong, but wasn't the uh, Sarah Beyond Churchill... Beyond Midnight is very murky, and the Columbia yeah. Workshop is crackly, Yeah, so you're, you're right there. What do you guys think about pace, production, and performance of this? Uh, any thoughts on... Uh, yes, I agree with you. And like I say, the suspense episode took a, a slower pace because it really focused on the characters, and I loved that. But it didn't particularly focus on the ghost story aspect of it if it really was more of a character study. The Beyond Midnight version, oh, I, I just have to because it was delightful to me. I went back and listened to not only each of the three episodes we listened to prior, but our commentary, and Joshua, you did make very clear in the Beyond Midnight that you were upset about the the narrator being identified as Charles Dickens and that the lights out went out of their way in the last two words of the episode to virtually reach out and kick you in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, that did annoy me a little bit. Charles um, Dickens, Joshua. I, I will say it harkens back to something like an old creative writing teacher uh, said to me, you can get away with anything in the last line of a story because it's basically, you know, we got you, sucker, is the right. last line. <laughs> and I think placing it at the end was not as annoying to me as like in, in the middle or wherever they put it in uh, Beyond Midnight. <laughs> but yes, my notes do say, again, Charles Dickens is not a gong-worthy twist. Stop <laughs> doing it. Because... <laughs> It's revealed as this revelation. Oh, it was Charles Dickens all along, except for we know from the top of the story this is written by Charles Dickens. And so, <laughs> right, stop. I mean, it was gone worthy to me because I, I was thinking of you as I heard it. Oh, so that was the sound effect of me being kicked in the groin to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wish that's the sound being kicked in the groin did make. Maybe every episode of Lights Out, when that gong is heard, <laughs> that's what's implied. There's a whole new meaning to the gong show. <laughs> oh. Or dinner's ready. <laughs> so, like I said, the suspense one, which I agree, the it was a beautiful production, and the the performances and the decisions they made in the adaptation were great. Yeah. Um, the second one we listened to, the Columbia Workshop, that one the focus was much more on the signaling himself being really potentially nuts. Yeah. Again, that was a sort of variation from the the source material, and Joshua said it in that in that commentary that. It wasn't as strong a variation as the first one, but it wasn't as faithful to the originals to really be one or the other, a strong, good choice, or true. Beyond Midnight was much more accurate, but kind of lacked in a strong choice. Consistently, all of them, this one included, I think, have had great production values. Even when it was using recorded, I think Beyond Midnight, we had a discussion about pre-recorded Foley effects instead of the live-produced one, but... For all of them, they, they sounded great and there were strong choices. And uh, it's part of the appeal of this story being adapted to radio. The person who adapted it, his name's like Frederick Lipp, I think. He added the sequence where the reporter goes back home after his first encounter with the signalman and has a dream where he <clears throat> sees himself in the cutout again. And it makes a connection between the reporter and the signalman, which is important to do, I think, in a story in which you make the narrator a reporter uh, because you risk 
making all of his questions these sort of detached journalistic inquiry. Whereas in the original short story, it is a little strange, but the um, narrator just sees this guy down in the cutout and is sort of drawn to him. There's almost a suggestion that this was sort of faded for him to witness this whole experience and then write about it. So I thought the the dream sequence kind of provided that same quality from the short story and made it a little more interesting. What I liked about this story a lot is that it emphasizes one of my favorite parts of the story and what I think is the heart of the story. And that is why won't the ghost just tell me specifically what tragedy is happening so I can do something? Right. I think in the original story, Dickens uses the term, it's a cruel haunting. And so this story really emphasizes it. It digs in. It adds extra language around it. The reporter says, you're not responsible for the future. You're responsible only for the present. What happens at this switch now? And the singleman says, these deaths are going to be on my shoulders. And I think that's where the horror in this adaptation really comes from. This adaptation, in fact, had a, a somewhat of an answer to that question, which I was delighted by. It wanted to show you one that you couldn't stop to prove that it knows and what it says is real. Not that that mm-hmm. actually came up, that he did like, oh, I believe you, and now you can warn me and I'll fix it. But it was interesting that this adaptation passed that dilemma along. The Sigleman is struggling to get this message from these ghosts because he cares so much and he's so feels so responsible for the people who pass by him. And the reporter is also then struggling very hard to get the right message from the signal man to pass along and can't necessarily explain why it's so important to know this or even for us to know, like, why are we listening to this? What's wrong with us? This is the fourth year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I hadn't thought about that, that this adaptation really draws out that theme of communication and miscommunication. How do we give out information accurately and that we understand why it's important. Yeah, and, and what are our various responsibilities connected to clear communication? <laughs> yeah, but what I thought was odd was the last lines, which seemed to steer this in the direction of psychological rather than supernatural. The reporter describes the signalman as one who bore the responsibility for his fellow men so strongly on his conscience that he died from it. For I'm convinced that that alone brought him to his end, not the train, which was merely an instrument of fate. So that's very different from the story, because the story ends not explicitly saying, yep, that was a ghost, but uh, (laughs) the story ends on an underscoring of the peculiar circumstances of this whole story, and how the exact same words were repeated by the the figure he saw and by the narrator himself when he first saw the signalman. So it emphasizes the supernatural or at least bizarre coincidence, whereas this seems to tell, at least that's how I interpreted it, as this was, the reporter was writing it off to a man who was overburdened by his responsibility and went a little crazy. Yep. But I thought it was interesting that unlike the um, Columbia Workshop version, the story didn't present him as crazy. This seemed to be a conclusion offered by the reporter. I also wanted to say, I think it makes an interesting contrast with last week's episode, uh, The Hitchhiker, in which the protagonist is desperate to avoid a supernatural call, but can't. 
And here the protagonist is desperate to answer a supernatural call, but can't. And in both stories, this supernatural visitor is signaling the death of the protagonist. One is already happened. (laughs) Yes, one has already happened, and one is destined to happen. So I thought it was an interesting pairing in that way. And both stories have the very same hello. Yes, I was struck by that. That that is a haunting way to yell hello from a distance. <laughs> it was a detail in the Columbia Workshop one that I didn't particularly catch or care about at the time, but when I was re-listening, when they did that initial hello down there, it echoes. Yeah. And I didn't think about it, but like, oh, they got a second actor. I mean, it's a, not a difficult trick, but it's a really nice touch. And that guy got paid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, put that's that's always good. <laughs> Other guy on the radio thing. Yeah. Um, I thought that the signalman actor was really, really good in yep. this. Me too. Yeah. And it is Herb Butterfield, who's one of those guys that I can't identify, but is in the credits of so many different radio shows that I listen to. Um, he was in tons of dragnets. He's been in tons of suspense. I don't know if ton is the right way to describe a quantity of radio shows. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> stupid. A great number of radio shows that I listen Buttload, to. Buttload, I think. Is- a, a, <laughs> a buttload of her Butterfield. <laughs> nope. That's a whole different movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Nelson Olmsted played the reporter, and he is the narrator from the spoken word anthology that we listen right. to on our Patreon-only podcast, uh, Sleep No More, um, who is also from, from the Twin Cities. From St. Paul, yep. All For the, tied uh, up in a nice, neat bow. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking of which version had which version to look at when they wrote their adaptations. So Suspense had this one. To consider mm-hmm. when they were writing their version. This one had the uh, the Weird Circle one was not that long before this, and Columbia Workshop was the earliest of them. Um, and as I recall, in the suspense version, the narrator is also a writer. I think she writes for a magazine, though, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah they have all been journalists of some kind or another, right. which is useful. Is this our first male one? Weren't the others all female? Just the suspense had a, uh, a female. With Sarah Churchill. Yes. There are eight existing episodes in total, so we are at the halfway point. (laughs) Then what lazy thing are you going to do in 2025, Tim, (laughs) for your Christmas pick? Uh, Christmas Carol, I don't know. (laughs) He's going to have to do a a one-man signal man. (laughs) I picked Oliver Twist. (laughs) Oh, please tell me there's not a radio version of Oliver Twist. I'm sure there is. All right. Probably NBC University Theater or um, Mercury Theater. You'll find out in five years. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going forward on my calendar and marking it. (laughs) Okay. Last thing I want to bring up, and part of what initially confused me about uh, Charles Dickens being the reporter at the end, is at the beginning of this, I felt like they were setting it in 1946. It didn't feel... Victorian to me, but then suddenly, right before the Charles Dickens reveal, all the railroad workers sounded like extras from A Christmas Carol, and then so did the copy boy at the very end, and I wondered if that was intentional to help suddenly like pull back the veil and say it's Charles Dickens. And then I thought I caught them for sure, because there's this point at which the signalman says, oh, you forgot your pen and pad, and I went, there was no 
pens or pads in Charles Dickens' time, and I looked it up, and I went, I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The ballpoint pen was invented in the late 1800s, and so was the legal pad. So I was like, okay, fine, lights out. And whenever anyone says copy boy, I just immediately hear typing and the full 1940s Billy Wilder kind of. Yeah, and that was the closing shtick of every episode of Nightbeat with Frank Lovejoy. At the yep. end of his story, he'd go, oh, copy boy. <laughs> That's what it made me think of. And then I went, oh, I wish Frank Lovejoy were in this. See, I <laughs> thought it was set in the 1940s, and then the Dickens reference at the end was, and I'm a ghost too, the ghost of Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Something didn't jibe right with me. Yeah. I think you're right. I did feel like it was 1940s, although when they said Charles Dickens at the end, by that point, for me, the horse was in the barn, and I went, yeah, yeah. Charles Dickens, okay, we're Whatever. moving on. Yeah. <laughs> but the copy boy was totally like, please, Sam, I have some copy. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was like super Dickensian. Yeah, and that God... Super Dickensian. And that God bless us, everyone line, that just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, it added a little extra layer of Christmas to this. Anybody want to add anything? Or should we vote? I just want to take away something, Charles Dickens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting that part of what maybe upped it a little for me and downed it a little for you, Joshua, is the lights outness of it. Of I came in with like, this might be a little ham-fisted. Not to disparage lights out, but, you know, high literature is not their strong point. Right. So uh, I had lower expectations, which it more than met. But if I had gone in like... I want this to be lights out, then I might be a little disappointed. Yeah, and I think I definitely wanted to see, ooh, what would a lights out signalman story sound like, you know, with like first person crazy narration from the signalman going, you know, I saw the ghost, I saw the ghost, I saw the ghost, I've got to save them. You know, that kind of repetitive stream of conscious monologue or something like that. That's what I was expecting. And so when it was such a um, overall respectful, straightforward adaptation. It it felt a little anodyne to me. Like, oh. Should we vote? Yes. Yeah. Joshua, you get to go first. Well, like I just said, I think Frederick J. Lip, if that is his name, that's that's who's credited (laughs) with it at the end. Um, He does a really good job adapting the story. It's very true to Dickens' original one, except for perhaps that summation that I talked about at the end, which yep. seems to really strongly intimate that at least the reporter, Charles Dickens, <laughs> um, <laughs> believes that it's <laughs> psychological in origins. And like I said, because I was expecting Lights Out, it felt a little dull. But this might just be signalman fatigue a little bit and that I, I wanted something <laughs> slightly different. Um, or it could be, let's be honest, it is tough to follow up The Hitchhiker. We're recording this in the same session, and I just listened to and talked about The Hitchhiker. Um, but I will say this. I had an Eric moment. This conversation made it kind of turned my opinion around. I, it, oh. it raised it in my estimation. Uh, you made some really good points, Tim, and Eric talked some too. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is great. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm sorry. I'm going on and on. But uh, definitely not a radio classic, but I think it stands the test of time for sure at least as much as Dickens' story does. And it's definitely historically interesting as a lights-out script, not penned by Cooper or Obler, and a literary adaptation. So yeah, fun to listen to. Since Tim picked it, I'll go next and let him finish it up. You ready? It's a classic. Definitely give it classic. I enjoyed this a lot. I'm not comparing it to other ones as much or 
for sure not comparing anything to the original writing, what Dickens did, because I, I don't know it, and I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just take it as a suspenseful ghost story, and it doesn't work for me. So not only do I call this a classic that stands the test of time, this seriously is one of my favorite episodes of old-time radio ever. It's up there with my top 15 for sure. Is it just performance? Performance, ben? the pace, and the production value. Oh, the three Ps. Yep. Honestly, I love the performance. I love the pace of it, which keeps that suspense and my anxiety up of what, even though I know what's going to happen. As we've talked about last week and again this week about what terrifies me and what I like in a ghost story, it has everything. Then you do care about the Dickens story because those are the elements that are very true to right. the original story. When I say you I don't care, Eric. <laughs> when I say I don't <laughs> care, I, I haven't read it, so I don't, I don't have any perspective of that, so I'm not comparing it to that. I just, do I enjoy this radio show? And I really did. And I liked The Signalman in the past, but this time listening to it, I actually love this story. I don't know that I would call it a classic, but it certainly stands the test of time. I would say if I had to pick, choose one version of The Signal Man to listen to, this is the one I would choose. Yep. And because it is good at everything. Not to damn it with faint praise, it's not. there are some things, other episodes that are great at certain parts that this is not. But every aspect of it I think is good and well done. Uh, and it is a really good example of baseline, this is a good adaptation of The Signal Man. And if you want to listen to variations that are interesting to compare to it, I'd recommend other episodes. But this is the one I'd, I'd say is your starting point. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Hello down there. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. You'll find other episodes of this podcast. You can comment on episodes. You can send us messages to suggest episodes or just say hi. You can order merch from links on our website. Um, you can link to our social media pages. Um, of course, if you want to buy some merch for the holidays, you are far too late. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they're good gifts for, oh, I forgot oh, sure. so-and-so. And let's or, you not, know, head start on 2021. Or, you know, <laughs> January 15th, miss. <laughs> oh, you know what is a great gift, and you can get it instantly, is you can support this podcast in someone else's name. And it's just immediate. You sign up, and uh, your loved one gets instant access to all of our amazing content. That was a some hell of, of not, a connection. Some of our not very good content as well. <laughs> mostly amazing content is on there. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. We have, as I have said over and over again, amazing stuff on there. Zoom happy hours, uh, Patreon-only podcasts. We have membership cards. We have monthly video newsletters uh, that are far more exciting than that name makes it sound. <laughs> so <laughs> go to patreon.com slash the morals. Do it. And you also get our monthly memo from uh, Human Resources. <laughs> <laughs> it's a video memo from Human Resources. If you'd like to see us in our theatrical uh, branch of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, where we perform uh, radio drama, uh, original works that is sometimes just original and literary adaptations. Sometimes we perform... Sometimes they're derivative. Sometimes they're derivative. <laughs> and sometimes we do recreations of old-time radio shows, classics with our own morals, 
spin on things. Uh, but you can see us performing live, even though it's not on stage right now because of COVID. Uh, you can still see us performing live by going to parksquaretheater.org and buying tickets where we do monthly shows with Park Square Theater. And you can also learn all about us and keep up with everything by going to ghoulishdelights.com or mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com or, once again, any of those social media things that I know nothing about except Facebook. There's a Facebook page and there's some other TikTok-y thing. And, uh, <laughs> we are not, we are not, not on TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> okay, why not? Uh, okay. <laughs> Watch us dance for 45 seconds. <laughs> oh, Tim just sold me on TikTok. I'm, I'm on it. All right. What is coming up next? Next, we will pay a visit to an old friend of ours, Mr. Vincent Price, in an episode of Escape entitled Present Tense. Until then. Please, Sam, I have some coffee. <laughs> My groin.